Well, as our two-dimensional friends from that famous Peanuts comic strip, we acknowledge Christmas time is here. As Christians, we lay hold of our Savior, born of a virgin, sinless as a baby in the manger, and sinless even as he hung on the cross in our place. We celebrate Advent. We celebrate the arrival of Jesus. And that's what the word Advent means. It means arrival. Each Christmas season is a reminder that Jesus, our Savior, arrived long ago, but at just the right time for us. Yet as Christians, every Advent is also a reminder that we await Jesus' second Advent, his second arrival, his second coming. You know, friends, there's a a connection between the Old Testament people of God that runs far deeper than a Jewish Messiah. The Old Testament builds with anticipation of when a prophet like Moses will come, when a king like David will come, when the Messiah would come and conquer darkness with glorious light. We can open the Old Testament and, not, and look not far to find prayers, proclamations, and songs of longing for God to deliver his people. And Jesus came, but as we've been seeing in John, he returned to the Father He's not physically present with us now. We have Christ in us by the Holy Spirit. But we are still waiting and longing, much like the remnant of Israel was. We await Jesus' return. Advent for us is a look backwards and a look forwards. We remember Christ who came and we reflect as each Lord's Day during the supper that he is coming again. Because church, he is coming again. Just as sure as Jesus came in the flesh long ago, he will come for us again. So Advent, Christmas, this whole season is a time for rejoicing and for longing. Rejoicing that we have been saved by Jesus and longing for his return to make all things new. This is why we can sing hymns like the ones we've sung already this morning in a minor key. Songs like, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, which we will sing throughout this season, and hymns like, What Child Is This? And also hymns in a major key like, Joy Has Dawned and Joy to the World. See, Advent is for saints who find themselves filled with joy this season and for saints who are weary with the burdens of life during Christmas. There's hope for every sinner in celebrating Jesus' birth because Jesus' birth is his proof that he will come again. If he came as he promised once, he will come as promised again. So, friends, let's celebrate Christmas as Christians whose hope is sure even as we wait for the fullness of hope to dawn on us again. And so for our church... As we've been talking about already in the service, we're going to spend Christmas thinking about how Jesus, our Savior, is our great high priest, the one mediator between God and man. Paul wrote to Timothy, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Each Christmas season, we reflect on a singular wonder of Jesus. That's how our pattern is 
for life in this church. And this year, we marvel together at the glorious priesthood of Christ. And what is interesting to note is that the only New Testament book where Jesus is called a priest is the book of Hebrews. He's not called a priest by name in any other book. So we're going to spend our time this Advent season with the author of Hebrews. So let's open our Bibles to the book of Hebrews. Our text for this morning is Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 through chapter 5, verse 10. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 through chapter 5, verse 10. If you're using one of the blue Bibles from a chair near you, you're going to find our text beginning on page 1002, 1002. And Lord willing, we are going to be in the book of Hebrews for the next five Sundays as we reflect on Jesus, our priest. So let's read of him from the word of God. Hebrews chapter four, verse 14, reading down through five, chapter 10. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was, so also, Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered uh, prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him, who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, I don't know about you, but sometimes I find advice frustrating. Sometimes I just don't like advice. And I'll be honest with you, sometimes I find advice frustrating even when I ask for it. It's true because a lot of times the advice I most need and the advice I receive is not the advice I want to hear about any given question. So I had my uh, yearly doctor checkup. I was only about eight years overdue. And because I'm now in the older man category of the New Testament, it was time to surrender and forfeit my blood to be tested. And so my doc emailed me a few days later to tell me my blood work looked good. I had one cholesterol level that was just at the average high line. 
And his email com- concluded with his prescription for me. Work on diet and exercise. And I thought, did this guy really just email me to say, oh yeah, stop being fat and lazy, <laughs> right? Like I, I thought, I, I didn't much care for that advice, doc. That's not what I was looking for. I didn't like his advice in the moment. Rather, because I probably would just have preferred to him to, to include in the email, you know, you are amazing just the way you are. Don't change for anybody. Maybe I wanted him to tell me that the mirror is actually lying to me. Maybe the advice I wanted him to tell me was uh, simply what I wanted to hear. Now, to be honest, I'm grateful he didn't do that. I'm trying to stick to his advice, except for Thanksgiving week, where no one should diet nor exercise. But I am trying to get back on the horse that he's given, even though I didn't like what he said, because he didn't lie to me. You see, friends, the doctor didn't lie to me because he didn't tell me what I wanted to hear. He actually told me what I needed to hear. And the the book of Hebrews is a lot like that. This church that the author is writing to is going through difficult times. They are being persecuted for their faith. They are hated because they follow Jesus. They've lost property, family, friendships, social status in their community. They've lost many things. And some of them are thinking about abandoning the faith and just returning to their former way of life because it'd be easier than going through the suffering they're going through at this point. Now, we might expect to a church that's facing that kind of reality a response from a pastor to sound a certain way. But I want to tell you now that the author of Hebrews does not do what we would expect. He actually does better. He tells these weary, heart-sick, broken Christians that their problem was not their suffering, or their persecution, but their immaturity. The help they needed in their suffering was not the end of their suffering. Rather, they needed to grow up. That doesn't sound like we would think you would say something to a church that's hurting. I mean, look at the verses that immediately follow our text. So if you've got your Bible open, look at verses 11 through 14 of chapter 5. He writes, about this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature. For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Friends, let that sink in for a moment. The author of Hebrews sees these hurting people and he doesn't tell them what they want to hear. He tells them what they need to hear. Even if it isn't what they wanted to hear. He does this throughout his sermon and through what we just read in our text by By showing them what they needed was not just an end of their suffering. They needed to see how Jesus is far superior to any former way of living. And which for these Christians would have been Judaism. 
These were former Jews who had converted to Jesus and were considering just, just turning back to Judaism. It'd be easier if we just went back to the system we had before. And this is why one of the reasons when you read the book of Hebrews, the author is so clearly showing that Jesus is actually the fulfillment of all the Old Testament promises. And he's making the case very plain to them that to turn back to Judaism is simply to turn back to death. There's no life in the former way of living, only death. And so I'm guessing, we don't know because we have one side of the story, that this is likely what they did not want to hear. It is unlikely that a suffering, sad, persecuted Christian really wants to hear the best thing for you is to grow up. We would maybe even classify an exhortation like that as harsh and uncaring, unless it's exactly what they need to hear. Maybe they wanted to be told that Justice was around the corner and God's going to soon give retribution to all of your enemies and everybody who's hurting you will pay. And worse, maybe they thought, you know, Jesus could be just a sham. So why don't we just go back to the way we used to live when things were so much easier? And the author's response in the letter of Hebrews is stop acting like children. You should be better than this. The time of acting like children is over. It's time to grow up in the gospel. How do they do that? How do you do that? Well, in our text, it means understanding that Jesus was and is the great high priest. It meant understanding that Jesus had fulfilled God's plan for salvation through his own suffering and that anyone who would follow Jesus ought to be fully ready to join Jesus in his suffering. I mean, he says this actually really clearly towards the end of his letter in Hebrews 13, verses 12 through 14. He says, so Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek a city that is to come. It could be that you and I need to hear this word too. That our pains, real as they are, are no excuse to turn on Jesus. Our suffering does not invalidate the mighty work that Jesus has done, nor the mighty work he's still doing. Perhaps what you and I really need to hear is this, it's time to grow up. It's time to mature in our faith in Jesus. It's time to put silly ideas about heaven on earth aside and look to Jesus outside the camp and declare that whatever it costs, I'd rather be out there with him than anywhere in here where it's safe. Because real safety is with him. Eternal safety is with him. Eternal life is with him. I'd rather be safe inside the company of Jesus than safe inside the company of this world. Now, to get to that point, we've got a bit of work to do. And for the rest of our time, I'm going to work through two big questions. What is a priest? And who is our priest? Two questions we're going to work through. What is a priest? And who is our priest? 
So answering the question, what is a priest, is necessary because, to be honest, many of us have little or no familiarity with what a priest is. We have maybe a lack of understanding of the role of a priest, or maybe even we've got some wrong ideas about what priests do or how they function, particularly in the scripture. On top of that, we may just have the plain struggle. We don't understand how the idea of having a priest helps with hurting Christians. What's more, you may be asking a broader question about why I'm talking about this, thinking, what does this have to do at all? with Advent. But I think if we pay attention, we'll see some some glorious things here. And thankfully, the author of Hebrews, as he is wont to do throughout his sermon here, he gives a masterful one-sentence definition of the biblical office of priest right in the middle of our text. 5 verse 1. Look at that verse again. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. There it is. That's why a priest exists and what they do. The role and function of a priest in a tightly wrapped present. Now we need to know there was a distinction between priests and high priests in Israel. The priesthood in general of Israel served the Lord by carrying out the day-to-day and seasonal functions and duties within the temple. The high priest was different. He had distinct responsibilities. And chief among them was on the Day of Atonement to enter into the most holy place of the temple, the Holy of Holies, and to sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice on top of the Ark of Covenant, which was called the Mercy Seat. The blood was the payment for the guilt of God's people. Only the high priest could enter only once a year. In church, this was his most solemn duty. Because in the Holy of Holies, he was real and in essence standing between God and his people. Representing the people before God. As our text says, acting on behalf of men in relation to God. His role was to offer up the sacrifice of blood as a substitute to atone for the guilt of the sinful people. That's what the author of Hebrews is saying, that the high priest was chosen and appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. He was a mediator. Why? Why? Because for a sinful nation to be before God would mean death. But if there was one who stood in their place before God with payment for sins, they would be forgiven and God's wrath would not fall on them for their sin. Now, if you're listening to me, there may be something inside you that says, I don't like that very much. A God who has wrath and requires blood payment for sin? 
What kind of God is that? I would argue we don't like it until we want it. Here's what I mean. You need to know that I listen to This American Life on national public radio because I'm old. It's true. And that's what old people do. They listen to This American Life on national public radio. But they recently ran a story that I thought was interesting about catching a con artist by using a con. Basically, a scamming phony investor would call people, convince him that he had an investment opportunity. He would convince them to give him their money and he would steal it. And he was actually caught by law enforcement, uh, a law enforcement officer pretending to be a potential investor. So the, the con man was conned by the police officer who drew him in and baited him on the phone with promises of money. And they tapped the phone line so that they could catch him in his criminal endeavors. Now, part of the podcast included the audio of some of the man's conversations. And, and at one point, the interviewer from NPR asked the officer who caught the con man if it made him angry to hear those audio recordings again. And he said, yes, every time. He says, because I talked to scores of people whose lives were ruined by this man and will never get their money back. Now, now what struck me, right, like is the sense of atonement that this officer had in talking about this, right? He was angry because he wanted this con man to pay for his actions, to restore what he had taken. It galled him to think that this guy had stolen so much and it would never be paid back. His sense of justice was causing anger as he listened to this man try to con again. Where does that come from? Where does that sense of justice come from? Where that sense of, of outrage and repayment, where does that come from? I think it's because he's made in the image of God. And even though I assume he is not a believer, he still bears the image of God. And when he sees a crime, he wants atonement. He wants justice. You see, we may not like the idea that there is a God who has righteous anger against sin when we are the guilty party. But in actuality, we love the idea of a God who is righteous anger when the sin is committed against us. We want justice. We crave justice. The thought of atonement for wrong is actually satisfying to us because someone has really wronged us. The problem comes for us then when the Lord looks upon our guilt and declares the wages of sin is death. It's a problem because when we're honest with ourselves, I mean really honest, friends, we know that we're not perfect people. We're broken people. We have committed wrongs against others and we have received wrongs committed against us and we do it even every day. 
But beloved, church, can you see then that the office of priest in the Bible is an actual testimony to the grace and mercy of our God as much as it is his wrath? He could have withheld forgiveness and mercy and he would have been justified in his universal judgment of all humanity. But praise be to God, he is not like that. He gave his people priests who could, by the means of sacrifice, obtain real forgiveness for guilty people. And the author of Hebrews even drills down into the hearts of the high priests in verses 2 and 3 of chapter 5, saying, He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because, because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. Here, the author of Hebrews is highlighting how the high priest himself was connected to the people because he himself was guilty. He needed to atone for his own sin. He did not enter the Holy of Holies as a sinless priest. So even as he carried a sacrifice for the people, he carried a sacrifice for himself. And look up a bit closer with me again at verse 2. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Do you see what he's doing there? The high priest, in theory, would be tender with Israelites who are ignorant and wayward. The author of Hebrews is describing the Old Testament priesthood, but is connecting the reality of these Christians he's writing to, because right then, they were acting ignorant and wayward. And notice that the priest's weakness brings gentleness from his heart towards the hurting and rebellious Israelites. You see, the office of priest was a comfort because it reminded, or excuse me, the office of priest was, was crucial, a, a comfort and a correction, excuse me, to the ignorant and wayward people of God. It was, it was comforting because their guilt could be atoned for. It was corrected because it pointed them to the reality of sin. Now, now we arrive at the problem that faces these Hebrew Christians. Should they go back? Should we just go back? Let's just go back to Jerusalem, uh, Judaism. It was easier. Should we just do that? Strong evidence points to this letter, this sermon being written around A.D. 65, which in terms of world history places this letter at the beginning of the reign of someone named Nero, who you might be familiar with, who is perhaps most famous and most notorious for the way that he brutally and horrifically persecuted Christians. And 65 AD is only five years from 70 AD, wherein the temple in Jerusalem would be destroyed. And any semblance of a Jewish priesthood and sacrificial practice would be gone as well. This actually leads to another real question. Who is our priest when there's no temple anymore? When there's no priesthood to speak of? 
No sacrifices or even an altar to sacrifice on. It's likely that the Hebrew Christians at the point of this letter didn't see that coming around the corner. For them, the option to return to Jerusalem, or excuse me, Judaism, was a temptation. To go back to the way things were was real. Some were even starting to neglect meeting together as Christians. We see that in chapter 10. See, the Hebrew Christians were tempted to abandon their confession, to go back to an old priesthood. But the author shows them that there is no life in the former high priests. Life was found in Christ, their great high priest, which is actually the one answer to our second question. Who is our priest? Verse 14 of chapter 4 opens with this precious reminder if we'd listen. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. You see, the problem was not that these Hebrew Christians had become priestless by following Jesus. It was actually that they had forgotten how Jesus was their glorious and eternal high priest. Jesus, the Son of God, who passed through the heavens, meaning he descended from heaven. This is their high priest. This was the priest they needed. When he exhorts them to hold fast their confession, he's talking about their confession of faith. He isn't saying hold fast to a set of doctrinal standards. That's not what the word confession means here. He's in effect saying, look at Jesus, who is your high priest, and hold fast to your belief in him. We will always be tempted to measure the goodness and effectiveness of Jesus by our circumstances. I am regularly tempted to think that Jesus is failing or ineffective when my life doesn't look like I want it to. When I'm tired, when I'm weary, When I'm scared, when I'm angry, I'm tempted to think Jesus isn't that good of a high priest. What about you? I bet you're tempted in similar ways. And what we we most need is not to think, I'll just give up. It was easier when I didn't follow him. Rather, what we need is to see that Jesus is our high priest who came to earth to be the perfect high priest, to accomplish the work of a priest acting on our behalf before God, securing for us eternal life in him and with him in heaven through his death in our place on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. That's what we need to remember. And our priest, church, our priest is not reluctant. He's not aloof. He's not distant. He doesn't look at the pain of these Hebrew Christians, nor does he look at our pain and say, I just have no clue what you're dealing with. I cannot relate. No. The author tells us that that is not Jesus at all. Look at verse 15 of chapter 4. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Now, church, can you hear the sound of the Christmas bells here? Can you hear it? The angels, the shepherds, the wise men, all announcing the birth of a child who became like us 
in order to save us. A child of heaven who comes as a child of man. Who comes taking upon himself our limitations, our flesh, our humanity in order to sympathize with our weakness, though he had none in glory. He had no weakness in glory. This God, this Son of God, takes weakness upon himself, entering into the world he made as a child with the mission of becoming our high priest. He can sympathize with us in our weaknesses even though he never bowed to sin. He was tempted, never sinning like we do. We have a savior. We have a high priest whose every living moment was perfection. He wasn't like the priests of Israel. His sympathy is not because he's a sinner like us, but because he took on humanity like us in order to offer himself up for us as both our priest and our sacrifice. Friends, the days of Jesus' flesh were the fulfillment of every work a priest was to do. Look at verses 7 through 9 of chapter 5. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. There's so much in those verses to see, but I want to draw your attention specifically to how Jesus is fulfilling the office of priest as the author has laid out. Remember what he said. Remember what he's told us, that the high priest acts on behalf of men in relation to God. And then he tells us that Jesus offered prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. So he is crying out to the Father, both for his own suffering and for the suffering of his people. And when is he doing it? In the days of his flesh. It's a reference to Jesus' humanity. So Jesus just didn't appear human. His humanity was a part of his priesthood. Otherwise, he couldn't sympathize with real humans. He was a human priest. And the author also points to Jesus' suffering as our priest, specifically as accomplishing the work of a priest in verse 9. His obedience and his suffering as our high priest is nothing less than the source of our eternal salvation. All of this points to the reality of the author of Hebrews is driving home. They don't need to go back to the former way of living the former priest, Jesus is the only priest they'll ever need. He suffered like them, yet his suffering accomplished eternal salvation for them. They could go to him in the midst of their own suffering because Jesus intercedes for them as their great high priest. But there's an even greater reality of Jesus' priesthood that they needed to see, namely that Jesus' priesthood is eternal. He is and will always be the perfect high priest of eternal salvation. I'm going to be brief here because we're going to talk about this next week. But we need to see it here. 
The author cites two Old Testament texts, Psalm 2 and Psalm 110, proving that Jesus is the Son of God, appointed a high priest by God the Father, and that he is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, we're going to spend a good bit of time meeting Melchizedek next week. But here, the example of Melchizedek is used to show that Jesus is a priest forever in verse 6. And that the salvation that he offers is eternal because of Jesus' forever priesthood after the order of Melchizedek in verse 10. What what does that matter? The work of the former high priests and even the priests that they were tempted to go back to would always be temporary. It would never last. There would always be another sacrifice to be made. But in Jesus... The final sacrifice had been given. Going back to a former way of thinking about priesthood could not compare to the eternal salvation given to them from an eternal priest. This is why it is the height of foolishness and even a death sentence for these believers to consider walking away from such a great high priest because Jesus is better. Because Jesus is superior. He is the only true priest. There is no other priest they need. There is no other priest we need. Since then, we have a great high priest, Jesus, the Son of God. And because of our great high priest, the Lord Jesus, the author of Hebrews says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Friends, the Hebrew Christians were in a time of need. And they were beginning to think that the help they needed was found in going back to the former way, to a dead priesthood. But that wasn't what they needed. They needed to go back to Christ, to the throne of grace, where help in the time of need is found. There was no help to be found in the former way of life. There was help at the throne of grace through Jesus the great high priest. And this can happen to us too, can't it? We can become beat up, beat down, burned out, and assume that it would just be easier to give up Jesus and go back to some former way of living, or maybe there's just a better way of living that doesn't include him. But Christ has come as your great high priest. Your abandonment of the truth doesn't make it any less true. And though following Jesus be painful and and hard, the life he promises here and now and for all eternity is a life he sustains with mercy and grace to help you in your time of need. You know, tough love is called tough love because it can feel hard. And honest advice can be difficult to listen to. The author of Hebrews knows what he's saying is hard. He even writes in chapter 12, For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Church, He may not have told these hurting Christians what they wanted to hear, but he was telling them what they needed to hear. 
And even in his discipline, he was showing them love. This is so fitting with Advent, isn't it? I mean, there are people all around us celebrating Christmas apart from any hope in Christ. And church, we need the boldness and love of God to so fill our hearts that it would overflow in telling our non-Christian friends about Jesus, the great high priest. It isn't what they want to hear, but it is what they need to hear. They need to hear that the wrongs they have done have separated them from God, but that their every sin can be forgiven by the one who came, who was born to become the great high priest. They need to hear that there is a priest who suffered like them and suffered for them so that one day their every grief would end if they would trust in him. Our non-Christian neighbors and friends need to know that Christmas is not only about a baby born in Bethlehem, but the eternal salvation that comes through believing in Jesus Christ. And maybe that's you. Maybe you're here this morning. Maybe you've heard the gospel a thousand times. But you don't know Jesus. He isn't your priest. Friend, he can be. If you would turn from sin and trust in Jesus, he would be your great high priest. I'd love to talk with you more about this. You can catch me after the service or you can catch Caleb after the service and we'd love to talk with you more. If you're a Christian, can you see how Advent reminds you that you have a great high priest who came to be tempted as we are yet without sin? That in celebrating the birth of Jesus, we celebrate the one who is our great high priest. We can encourage each other this Advent season, this Christmas, that though we were sinners, God sent his son to be born of a virgin in order to accomplish redemption through his perfect obedience and substitutionary death as our high priest. He passed through the heavens to come to earth, to take on flesh, to be for us what every priest before him had failed to be. He came to be our Savior and to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. Let's pray.